In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. This is what the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps it had gone down. And picking up at um, chapter 39, verse 1. At that time, Marduk Balan, son of Baladan's king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift, because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Elizabeth. Like, like we've said, it's just so nice to be here amongst you all and to see you all again. And uh, we're enjoying uh, catching up with many of you. So please come and say hello af- afterwards if, if we haven't already seen you. Have you heard of the the phrase, the adage, think globally, act locally? I'm sure you've heard of that. It's quite a common saying, and it urges people to consider the health of the entire planet while taking action in your own community and uh, city. It's it's an idea that's come into vogue, I guess, over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, and especially in relation to the environment and fears for the health of the planet. (laughs) As as an aside, 
uh, do you realize that that phrase was first introduced by a, a Scottish town planner by the name of Patrick Geddes in 1915. So long ago, over 100 years ago. Well, today, um, we're continuing in your series on, uh, in, in the uh, prophecy of Isaiah, and it's called Two Cities. Uh, I've entitled my sermon today, Act Locally and Act Globally. I've called it that because, as we'll see, God is a God who is big enough to both act locally and to act globally. And our passage today will show that really clearly. You see, part of what's behind this think globally, act locally idea is the idea that even though we know a lot about the planet as a whole because of technology and things like that, we can really only act locally At least the average person like you and me can really only act locally. Uh, That's our scope. And it's that idea of doing your little bit to help where you are will help towards the greater, greater big. But as followers of Jesus, there's a whole other dimension of this that we need to take into account. So let's let's have a look at these chapters and see what I'm talking about. The whole block of chapters 36 to 39 are some of the very few narrative storyline passages in Isaiah. Uh, If you've been following in the Isaiah series, you see that it's mostly all poetry. But these chapters are purposely divided or provided uh, here as a bridge or as a turning point between chapters 1 to 39 and chapters 40 to 66. Uh, You're doing 1 to 39 at present and you'll be doing chapters 40 to 66 uh, in a few weeks' time. Chapters 36 to 39 also provide one of the major themes of the whole book of Isaiah, and that is the theme of trust. Who do you put your trust in? And that is what these chapters are all about. Let me just give a, a brief explanation of chapters 36 and 37, and then we'll look at a bit more detail in chapters 38 and 39. In chapters 36 and 37, they tell the factual story of an initial attack by Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, and his attack on Jerusalem. Assyria was a current world power at the time and, and in that region. And the new king, Sennacherib, uh, was grabbing back control of nearby nations who had taken advantage of a change of, of king and, uh, and took it as an opportunity to try and rebel against Assyria. And Judah was one of those nations that was doing that. Judah was what was left of King David's kingdom uh, of Israel. And after his son Solomon, uh, who was after King David, the kingdom of Israel was split into two nations. You can see there the the green northern ten tribes of Israel and then the orange uh, two other tribes of Benjamin and uh, Judah that were left. And uh, the, the, the bottom orange section had Jerusalem as its capital. Well, a few years before chapter 36 the story in chapter 36, Assyria had swept through the region and destroyed Israel 
uh, the ten northern tribes, on its way to Jerusalem. And, and as it went towards Jerusalem, it destroyed all the, all the countryside and the towns and villages uh, throughout Judah. Assyria was now on the verge of besieging Jerusalem and taking it over. Hezekiah was the king of Judah at that time. And Sennacherib sent his envoys to tell Hezekiah, mate, give up. You've got Buckley's. We've got you over a barrel. And Hezekiah, who was one of the few good kings of, of Judah, prayed to God to save them and asked Isaiah, what is God going to do in this situation? Well, God miraculously intervenes and Sennacherib is sent packing. He ends up going back uh, to his capital of Nineveh and while he's there, he is killed by his two brothers and he never comes to, back to Jerusalem to take it over and to, and to carry on the siege. Then we come to our chapters, uh, chapters 38 and 39. Chapters 36 and 37 chronologically occur before chapters 38 and 39. And you think, oh, why is is that going on? But Isaiah has purposely put them around the other way uh, for a reason. It's because these four chapters provide the turning point between chapters 1 to 35, as I said before, between chapters 1 to 35 and chapters 40 to 66. And uh, chapters 1 to 35 have all been about the, the impending crisis that the nation Assyria uh, is confronting uh, on, on Judah and on Jerusalem. And these chapters are all about judgment and uh, destruction. Whereas chapters 40 to 66, which you'll come to in a few weeks' time, you'll see will all be about the Babylonian crisis and all about comfort and eventual salvation through judgment. And so these stories in these chapters here are about how God is going uh, in movement from judgment uh, to salvation, from Assyria to Babylon. Now let's look uh, briefly at chapters, uh, chapter 38. This is where we see God acts locally. It's the story of King Hezekiah and how he became ill. And the prophet Isaiah comes and tells him that God says that he will die. Get your house in order. Sort your life out. You're going to die. Get ready. And Hezekiah cries out to God in prayer. And God hears his prayer and sees his tears even and gives him another 15 years of life. Not only that, but God says he will deliver Jerusalem from from the hands of Assyria and he gives Hezekiah a sign. He turns the shadow of the sun back 10 steps. Now, this is very different from what we've been reading in Isaiah up to this point. It's a big change from the other stories. This is an intimate, personal interaction between Hezekiah and God. It's about God acting locally. He's acting, uh, Hezekiah was about to die, and 
you know, probably like all of us, he wasn't too keen on the idea. Uh, and he wept bitterly. Think about that for a moment. Think about ourselves. Even when we are confident of our future, confident of our salvation, confident of the coming eternal life that we have through Jesus, there is still that longing to stay around, to be with our friends, to be with our family. And that sadness of separation, well, that's normal. You you should expect that as a Christian. Sure, you look forward to the joy of salvation and being with God uh, in heaven forever, but at the same time, you're leaving a whole lot of other uh, people for, for a while. And so that's a normal sort of reaction uh, that, that, that you can expect as a Christian. And notice, God hears his words and he sees his tears and he gives him far more than what he asked for. He gives him an extra 15 years onto his life and he delivers Jerusalem from their enemies. God is indeed hugely gracious at this point. (laughs) What do we make of that sign? (laughs) Uh, The the shadow of sun moving backwards. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Well, God is a miraculous God. He can do that. He can raise people from the dead. He can change time. Uh, So he works miracles, and that is what he did, and that's all we're told. The rest of chapter 38 which we didn't read out. But if you have looked through that, if you've got it in front of you, it's a song of thanks from Hezekiah. It's a personal and heartfelt reflection from him, a display of his faith and trust in God and in praise of a God who does indeed act locally, who acts personally, who is intimate with us and involved in our private lives. It's worth reflecting on that for a minute, isn't it? God is personal. He's intimate. He's involved in our lives. And no doubt, during this COVID time, you've seen God in action, both in tragedy and in the joys of this pandemic. We in Dubai have seen God's gracious saving of life, Uh, taking people out of the jaws of death, as well as his comfort as people are taken away and die. And we see the trust that people show as this is happening around us. We we need to keep remembering that, don't we? That God, God is sovereign. He is sovereign over what's going on with this whole pandemic. He is totally in control and he is all in his hands and we need to trust him, whatever happens at this time. Well, from this intimate story uh, about Hezekiah, Isaiah rushes on to the next short story, but it's a significant story in chapter 39. And if you look at that, you can see that the flow of the passages is that God is moving from the intimate and personal now in chapter 39 to the public and international because Hezekiah, he was a king, king of a nation and a public figure. 
So he's, he's, God is moving from the local to the global uh, in these two stories. And this, this visit that we read about from the, from the envoys of the king of Babylon occurred soon after Hezekiah's recovery from near death. But it was about 11 or so years before the events of chapters 36 and 37. And as I said, chronology was not important to Isaiah at this point because he's trying to get something else across to us. The background of this story is that in around about 712 BC, Babylonia, the nation of Babylonia, was under the yoke of the new regional superpower, Assyria. And it was its neighbour, right next door to it, as you can see on the map there. But Babylonia was trying to resist Assyria. And King Hezekiah receives, the king of Judah, receives these envoys from the king of Babylon. And he goes about and he shows them everything that he has. His storehouses, his weaponry, uh, his armies, uh, all the treasures that he has. He shows them, shows them everything in Jerusalem. Now, what is going on here? Well, what's going on is that Babylonia wants Judah to join them in a pact against Assyria. So that's what's going on. And this was obviously very tempting for King Hezekiah. It must have seemed like the logical thing to do, um, to have such a great nation as Babylon, Babylonia, coming to you and, and courting you and asking you to join with them to enter into a pact. Uh, it must have been a very flattering thing for, for King Hezekiah. But what you notice about this story is that Hezekiah does not seek God's counsel. He doesn't seek God's wisdom. And there's a sharp interchange, if you read carefully, uh, those, those verses in 1 to 8, between Isaiah and Hezekiah. Isaiah declares that he is being foolish, that Hezekiah is being foolish, uh, and says that in the end, this very nation who have visited you to enter into a pact with you, they will become your enemies. They will be the ones who carry you off to captivity. Now, King Hezekiah did many good things in his reign. And he's one of the few good kings recorded uh, in the Bible. But... This was a huge decision he made without seeking the counsel of God, without showing the trust that you would expect of a king who claimed to follow Yahweh. And Isaiah let him have it. He got stuck into him. And that's because Hezekiah's joy of deliverance from the jaws of death seen in the end of chapter 38, did not carry through to the way he ran the nation, the way he ruled the kingdom. The idea of chapter 38, verse 20, the Lord will save me and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord, did not show itself in the way he conducted himself with this other nation. 
it was a critical time and it was a terrible lapse of trust by Hezekiah. And it showed no trust in God. And look at Hezekiah's response. Remember those, ver- those, those uh, words in, in verse 8? The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. That shows a disturbing self-centeredness on the part of Hezekiah. I'll be okay. It's just my sons who will cop it. I'll be fine. My legacy will be safe. What a shocking attitude to have. And it's from here that we move into the second half of Isaiah's prophecy in chapters 40 to 66. Well, let's step back for a moment and see where we've come. We can now see how these chapters provide the turning point between chapters 1 to 39 and chapters 40 to 66, moving from Assyria to focusing on Babylonia. And here is God acting locally in graciously giving Hezekiah another 15 years of life. But God also, in a sense, acting globally as Hezekiah refuses to trust God and looks only to his own safety and his own comfort. God thereby declaring the downfall of Judah to be accomplished by another upcoming world power. But of course, we know it doesn't all end there. If you're at all familiar with the the book of Isaiah, Isaiah goes on to present the coming of one who will bring salvation, of a suffering servant to come, one who will bear their iniquities, as it says in, in Isaiah 53, one who bore the sin of many, And this suffering, uh, this suffering servant is also a king, as we've seen earlier on in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. A king, we've already been told, who will reign on David's throne. A king very unlike King Hezekiah. It will be a king who will trust God perfectly. A suffering king who will draw to himself a people from all nations, a king who will act globally, not just locally. That, of course, as we come to the New Testament, we realize is the person of Jesus Christ, who lived on earth over 2,000 years ago, who was killed on a Roman cross in Palestine, and who rose from the dead to begin a global kingdom, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Who do you put your trust in? If you're not familiar with this person, Jesus, or want to know more about him, please come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to tell you more about the significance of his death and resurrection for myself, but also for you. Come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love you to do that. But of course, this didn't all end with Jesus' death and resurrection. As Jesus was leaving to return 
to, the father, to his Father in heaven, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he told those who were with him in Matthew 28 that they were, to, were told to go and to make disciples and to replicate that among the nations. And that is exactly what we see happening in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. And we see the disciples of Jesus moving out from Jerusalem, taking the gospel message with them, and by the end of Acts, coming to the very center of the great Roman Empire. And that movement of the gospel has been going on ever since then. Over the last 2,000 years, Christians have been going throughout the world, throughout the nations, taking the good news of Jesus with them. You see, and the reason they do that is because as Christians, our role as Christians, or if you'd like to think of it another way, your, our job description as Christians is to be the messengers of the great news of what God has done, of what Isaiah spoke about and of what Jesus fulfilled. And that is why St. Jude's has had such a, a, a strong uh, emphasis on global mission. It's such an important part of the ministry of St. Jude's. It is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, wherever you are, whatever your personality, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to go overseas. You don't even have to be an extrovert. But if something has happened to you that has changed your life forever and you know will be life-changing for other people, then that's got to be worth telling others about, especially if it has to do with life and death. And it needs to be seen in our lives it needs to be lived out in our lives. And with that living out, it needs to be explained of why we're acting the way we are and what's going on. It doesn't have to be a sermon or it doesn't have to be a speech. It just has to be part of our normal conversation, our normal talking with those around about us. No religious jargon, no in-depth explanation of theological complexities, none of that. It just has to be a simple explanation of the new life that has been given to you by Jesus, by his death on the cross instead of us. You don't have to be a missionary to do that. The beauty of our passage this evening that we've looked at is it gives us a view a glimpse of how God acts globally. After the, the local action of grace shown to King Hezekiah, Isaiah opens the door in chapter 39 to the rest of the message of God. That is, God is going to act globally by bringing all the nations into his kingdom through this suffering King Jesus. And that is very much what Deb and I have been part of in Dubai. We're in a situation where the nations are gathered. Over 85 nations gather in our church every week. And when we meet, well, that's when we meet. 
Uh, even in COVID, though, even online, it is happening. And we have these people from all over the planet coming to Dubai to live and work for a number of years and then returning to their home countries. It's an amazing opportunity uh, that we've been given to be involved in. And because there are, there are many nations gathered in Dubai, there's an incredible openness from everyone. Uh, we are all sojourners together in Dubai. All foreigners, 85% of the population of Dubai are foreigners from other countries. Only 15% are Emiratis. And we're all doing something new and something different. And so that encourages people to look beyond themselves and to scratch their heads and say, well, why are you different? What is it you believe? Why do you live that way? And these people, through faithful Christians, hear the gospel and become followers of Jesus. And then they take the gospel back to their original countries where they came from. And so the multiplication continues and the gospel continues to be proclaimed. Let me tell you a story. I was training um, a new group of small group leaders. Uh, we run a 10-week series where we invite people who want to be small group leaders and we open it up to anybody in the church uh, to come and do some studies with us. And during that 10-week period, I try to assess the dozen or so uh, people who have come into my group as to whether or not they'd be okay to be leaders. Um, some of these people, not only have they never been leaders before, but some of them have never been in a small group Bible study before, ever. And yet they're coming and they want to be involved and they, they um, um, volunteer to, to lead groups. Um, and so we assess them during that 10-week period as to whether or not they'd be okay to do it. And some people we have to say, no, so look, why don't you come back next year and we'll have another go and we'll see how, how things have progressed by then. I was running this group uh, for 10 weeks and there's one group, there's one fellow in the group called Joachim and he was really quiet, really quiet the whole time and by the end of the, 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 the group, I was unsure as to whether or not he would become a leader and whether or not I should appoint him as a leader. Um, he came up to me some, uh, a couple of weeks before I got a chance to meet with him came up to me and said to me after a service one day, he said, John, thank you so much for those 10 weeks of teaching. It has changed my whole view. Uh, I belonged to a prosperity gospel church back in Uganda. And this, this teaching over the 10 weeks has totally changed how I read and understand the Bible. I realize now that what I've been taught in my other church was wrong. And that our relationship with God is based on grace. And we, that, our, that, that it's got nothing to do with buying God's approval. He had been totally changed, converted if you like. And he, he got on the phone uh, to his wife. His wife was back in Uganda with their child. And he was over in Dubai earning some money so they could survive back in, in Uganda. And, and, and he told her all about it, and she became excited and, and, and converted, if you like. And then 
The holidays came and he decided he'd go back and see his wife and family, had a few weeks uh, leave, but he decided that he'd go back to Uganda and he, before he went, he contacted five churches uh, surrounding nearby where he lived. And he arranged with the minister in each church for him to come and to teach the church about small groups and about how to read the Bible because they weren't doing it. And so he went back there and he did that during his holidays. Then he came back here, back to Dubai, and he said to me, John, I'm, I'm going to go back home in, in a year or so um, uh, to be with my family and, and, and to, to live and work in, in, in Uganda back home. And what I want to do, I want to work in Christian ministry. But to work in Christian ministry, I have to have, the government won't let me be a, a Christian minister unless I have some qualification of some sort that I can show them. Can you help me with anything? So I said, yeah, yeah, sure I can. There's this place called Ridley College in Melbourne. It has an online course. Uh, it's called the Ridley Certificate. Let me put you through that. And so sure enough, he went through and, and completed his Ridley Certificate, and then he left, and he's gone back to be with his wife and child, but to work in Christian ministry. Isn't that incredible? This is a, a guy who had never been involved in this sort of stuff before. Uh, and so there was a gospel being replicated taken forward and multiplied uh, from Dubai, from what we're doing in Dubai. It's a very exciting story. It's a huge privilege to be involved in stuff like this. Uh, amazingly, God continues to grow his, his kingdom uh, through what's happening in Dubai. Uh, it's not just a privilege for us, let me say. It's also a privilege for you. It's not just Deb and I doing this. You are also involved in it. Yes, you are, really. You can be part of what God is doing globally while you're here in Melbourne. Because part, we are part of a kingdom that has no physical boundaries. Because we are part of a worldwide church, a worldwide family. And then what God is doing in other parts of the world you can be involved in back here in Melbourne. Our ministry is your ministry as well. Through your prayers, you are really part of what God is doing through us and other people in Dubai. You can thank and praise God for what he has done in Joachim's life. Your prayers make you part and parcel of what God is doing. God is acting globally. And so by St. Jude's as a whole, by supporting global mission partners like ourselves and others, and by you personally, individually, uh, trusting and following God, and through your prayers and through your support of organisations like CMS, and the continued relationship that we continue to have with you guys as, as we send out prayer letters and you reply uh, to those prayer letters, and we continue that conversation and that relationship. You are part of what God is doing. You can be acting globally, not just locally. Now, Isaiah 38 and 39 shows us that God is a God of both the local, the personal and intimate, and a God of the global. He is capable of both. So that makes us capable of both. 
because of our intimate contact with this huge universe-wide God. God is bringing worldwide change bit by bit. His kingdom is growing, just as he said he would through the prophet Isaiah. And we are here to tell you about one small aspect of the way God is doing that in Dubai. It's, it's, it's fun and it's exciting. And we, we feel so privileged to be there. Don't know why we spent 18 years at St. Jude's. We should have gone there eight. No, no, it's okay, it's okay. We, we, we really did enjoy our time here at St. Jude's. But it's just, uh, it's been a marvellous experience for us. It's made more challenging by COVID, let me tell you. Uh, especially since we are still not meeting uh, as a church in person. And that has all sorts of challenges. But still, it is something you can consider yourself part of. And that is my prayer for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a global God. And yet you're still local, intimate, personal, involved with each of us. Father, we thank you uh, for your character in that respect. And Father, we thank you that we can be part of what you are doing around the world. Indeed, you want us where we are, both in terms of our friends and the people we know, to tell them about what you have done, but we can also be part of what's going on in other parts of the world because we're part of your worldwide family. Father, we thank you so much for that. And we pray that you might continue to grow your kingdom and we pray that we might be honouring to you in doing that as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing this next song, um, I've just loved hearing about...